You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at the present time, there remains, according to the election of grace, a remnant. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, a work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Let's pray. Lord, coming to this text at first glance, Lord, kind of to the untrained eye, we would think, what does this really have to do with me? Um, But Lord, for so many ways, this applies to us. First of all, it's your word and you breathed it out and it's profitable to correct us and convict us and to train us and equip us for every good work for you, Lord, to teach us right doctrine. It's profitable in the days that we're living in where there is turmoil in the Middle East and war in the, in the city of Jerusalem. There is violence and, and you're coming soon. And we just wonder, what is your eschatological plan? And Lord, it's so profitable because we get a glimpse of your incredible grace. Grace upon Israel and grace upon us Gentiles. And Lord, we pray for the very spirit who inspired this text to speak to us now. Lord, would you just show us our fallen condition and how we are so desperately in need of salvation. And Lord, may we also get a glimpse of your sovereignty and your greatness and your glory. Let it be all about Jesus today. In your name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
Well, we've come to this section in Scripture, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where the focus has been on Israel. In chapter 9, we've seen God's, uh, excuse me, not God's, Israel's past, and we looked at his sovereign election, the election of God upon Israel. You might want to listen to those studies if you weren't here for about the five-week series through Romans chapter 9, intense, deep doctrine and theology that uh, you need to know. You need to know, and we'll get into a little of it today, but uh, the crux of it was about uh, four weeks ago in Romans chapter 9. We looked at Israel's past and his election of Israel. In Romans chapter 10, we've looked at Israel's present state that they currently are rejecting Jesus. They have a rejection of the Messiah and a rejection of God. And then in chapter 11, that we'll hopefully crest into today, we see Israel's future, Israel's salvation, Israel's restoration uh, from God. So 9, 10, and 11, simply put, Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future. We can see just how stunning uh, just God's plan is over the next probably two weeks where we live in just a world of political problems over there in Israel. And this chapter, chapter 11, is going to really shape our understanding of God's dealings with Israel, his dealings with the Palestinians, um, you know, who is uh, part of judgment, who is part of salvation. And uh, this chapter really will help us dive in. Uh, well into those topics. But um, we see there in verse 18, as we dig in, it says, Has not uh, all Israel heard the context? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. We, we talked about in chapter 10 how the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts us in our sin. It confronts us with our faulty worldview, and then it swoops in in a a heroic action and gives us a correct view. It's very subversive in nature. So the gospel confronts us in our sin and brings in the good news of how to be saved from our sin. Then we also saw how not only does it confront, but it converts And we looked at that last week, that whoever would believe on the name of the Lord, that they would be saved. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. But we see that there's something missing in that. There's the need of the evangelist, the one that preaches the good news. And two weeks ago, we looked at how the gospel commissions, the gospel sends us out. There's a necessity of evangelism. And in looking at all of that in depth, we saw that, man, we need to be preachers. We need to be heralders of the gospel so that people can call on the name of the Lord, so that they can hear of the name of the Lord and know who to call on. As you look at the machine, as Spurgeon put it, the great machine of salvation uh, in uh, chapter 10 there, verse 14. How are they to call on whom they've not believed? How are they to believe on him whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And so the question is asked in verse 18 there. Haven't they all heard? Immediately he answers his question, yes, certainly they have. Their sound has gone out into all the earth. This word has gone out to the ends of the earth. What is this word? It's the word of faith. Paul calls it there in chapter 10, the word of faith. That is the word where Christ is both the content 
and the author. And he quotes Psalm chapter 19 here, which in its context, Psalm 19 is actually talking about the uh, eloquent global witness from creation. Psalm 19, how creation declares the handiwork of God. But then he uses the same language to say that uh, not only does creation declare God's glory and the general revelation, but there's this specific revelation that has gone out to the whole world. Through the preachers, this revelation of God, the revelation of uh, his grace, and that it's universal as well. As Colossians puts it, the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. This good news has been gone out, has gone out to the Jews. As F.F. Bruce puts it, this is all representative universalism, meaning that whenever there, wherever there were Jews, and in particular wherever a Jewish community existed, there the gospel had been preached. So the Jews have heard. They cannot blame their not believing on their not hearing. That's the state of Israel right now. The Jews have heard the gospel. The Jews have heard about their Messiah. Even back in Paul's day, the, the book that we're reading in chapter 1, he says, I thank God that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. All of Israel had known about these Roman Christians being saved there in, uh, in uh, Italy. You know, hearing the gospel, this Gentiles getting saved, it had gone all the way back to Jerusalem and it was making some of the Jews quite angry as we read in the book of Acts. In Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10, we see that the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Have they heard, and remember the context here, it's Israel. Has Israel heard of God? Has Israel heard of his plan of salvation? Yes. The Lord has made it plain. The Lord has made it evident. So have they heard? Indeed, Paul says in verse 18. What about verse 19? But I say, did Israel not know? Have they heard? Yes. Well, have they known? Well, let's look at Moses. One of the Jews' heroes. Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. There in the law, Moses spoke forth to Israel, warning them that if you're going to keep being stiff-necked, I'm going to bring this foolish nation in to provoke you to jealousy. We'll look at that more next week in chapter 11, verse 11, what this provoking to jealousy is. But you can just get an idea in the simple language itself. These people, these Jews, are going to want what the foolish nation has. First of all, they're called a foolish nation. As you look all throughout the scriptures, wherever there was idolatry, Wherever there was idol worship, wherever a man would go out into the woods and, you know, cut down a log and drag the log home and chop it up. And, you know, with part of the log, he would build a house. Part of the log, he would make a fire and warm himself and then cook his bread on that fire. And part of the log, he would fashion himself a little, you know, idol, a little figure. 
and then place the idol up on his mantle and worship the idol. The very thing he cut down, he fashioned, he put it up there, and you know, when it, a strong wind comes by, it tips over, he puts it, you know, it's just foolishness. And all throughout the Old Testament, we read that, you know, as these idols are foolish, those that make them are like them, Psalm 115 verse 8 says. And everyone who trusts in an idol is just like that idol, dumb. <laughs> there in chapter 115 of Psalms says, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they mutter through their throats. They're dumb and they're mute. They're foolish. And so is anyone who makes them, so is anyone who trusts in them. As Paul tells the Corinthians, you know that you were all Gentiles carried away by dumb idols, however you were led. And, you know, we laugh the stupid people that carve the tree and, you know, whittle it on the front porch. And that that's so silly. That's dumb. You know what? We fall into the same trap today. Whether it's inanimate objects that we, you know, we put our trust in. Some figurine or something like that. Or, you know, it, it's money, vehicles, status. Things we put our energy into that are not part of God, part of his kingdom. Even personalized pe people, you know, that, that breathe and that talk and that show affection. We can make them idols. And yet in comparison to God, they are nothing. They are worthless. They are impotent. And so is anyone who trusts in them. So is anyone who puts their life's work into investing in them rather than investing in God. As Titus is told by Paul, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul says all of this, all that we were apart from Christ was foolish. And he says, I'm going to use these dummies that put their trust in idols, that put their trust in something who is not Yahweh, who is not creator, who is not sovereign, who doesn't know all things, who doesn't have all power, who doesn't have all wisdom. These people that put their trust in the created thing, I'm going to use them to provoke you to jealousy. And so we have this testimony from the law, from Moses. As you see, he says there in verse 18, first Moses says. So first, the law testifies of God's plan. Secondly, we have the testimony of the prophets in verse 20. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest by those who did not ask for me. We look real quickly at just the boldness of Isaiah. As we're told in Proverbs 28, that the righteous are as bold as a lion. Interesting that the New Testament marks that out in Isaiah's life, that he was bold. He was told to be bold. In Isaiah 51, uh, 58 verse 1, he's told by the Lord to cry out, to spare not, to lift up his voice like a trumpet, to tell his people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sin. Be bold, Isaiah. So Isaiah was bold. Isaiah was bold in the same way today we New Testament Christians are called to be bold. But that power and that, that uh, strength, it doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't come from mustering up courage. 
It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit who's come upon us. You can cry out for more and more and more of that power to continually flow through you. That person of the Godhead, the, the, of the Trinity, the third person, the Holy Spirit comes upon us that we could have boldness, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, that we could be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so Isaiah had a boldness and we too can have a prophetic ministry, an evangelistic ministry, a bold ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can speak forth the same things that, uh, that could get us whipped, that could get us beat up, that could get us martyred, just like Isaiah was martyred. We could speak forth things from God that he speaks forth, where he says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That was a slap in the Jew's face. Their whole life was seeking after God. They did it their way, but they were religious about it. It was a slap in their face to hear of people that weren't even trying finding God. As you look there at Isaiah 65, verse 1, and, and uh, since we have la- less slides this week, you can just kind of learn your Bible yourself and flip over there to Isaiah One of the major prophets you're going to find after Psalms, after Proverbs, after Ecclesiastes, after Song of Solomon. Isaiah 65.1 is this verse that is quoted boldly by Isaiah. Isaiah 65.1, he says, I was sought by those. This is the Lord speaking. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And you know, Paul could have added this third clause of the verse. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. As John Stott says, taken together, these three clauses complete the picture. God deliberately reverses the roles between himself and the Gentiles. It would normally be for them to ask, them to seek, them to knock, as Jesus later puts it, and to adopt towards him the respectful attitude of servant to master, saying, here I am. Instead, although they did not ask or seek or offer anything of themselves to his service, he allowed himself to be found by them. He revealed himself to them and he even offered himself to them saying humbly to them, here I am, here I am. I love what what Stott puts here. This is dramatic imagery for grace. This is dramatic imagery for grace. God taking the initiative to make himself known. Have you ever just stumbled upon something that you weren't looking for that just ended up being the greatest treasure? You know, maybe you're into garage sales, you know, and you just go around and you're not looking and then bam, someone's got what you totally need and you totally want. You weren't even looking and just there it was. And that's what's happened with the Gentiles. Nothing in us seeking after God, Romans 3 says. Nobody inherently just wanting God. But rather, we were rebels. We had turned our back on the Creator. We had worshipped created things. It's interesting, in these final verses in uh, chapter 10, verse 20 and 21, you have man's responsibility and God's sovereignty 
in, vo- in, in both texts here. As Spurgeon put it, that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It's just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find it in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can never contradict each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one shall pursue them farthest. We'll never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God where all truth does spring. These two polar, what seem to be polar opposites, of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, they're both true. We've looked at that in depth, specifically in chapter 9. I encourage you again, get those studies and listen to them to, to just grow in your theology, to grow in your understanding. But in the 20th verse here of chapter 10, we have the doctrine of sovereign grace. And in the next verse, verse 21, we have the doctrine of man's guilt in rejecting God. God is sovereign, gracious, manifesting himself to those that don't even seek him, but man being responsible and guilty in their rejecting of God. As we look at Romans chapter 9, verse 24 and 26, just to flip over just a page perhaps there in your Bible, we see this uh, Similar uh, wrestling match, you know, the the Gentiles not even seeking the Lord, uh, Israel seeking the Lord, and the mystery of who actually finds him. In chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Even us whom he is called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Now if you jump on down there to verse 30, it says, What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel who pursued the law of righteousness have not attained to the law of righteousness. So let's just stop for a second. This crazy mystery that the very people that were not seeking after God and not seeking after righteousness are being made righteous right now, even in this room. But the people that had been seeking righteousness, Israel, the Jews, they had fallen short. And so we ask ourselves, why? Look at the next verse there in chapter 9 of Romans. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so the reason that Israel, though they were pursuing righteousness, they were really pursuing a self 
righteousness. They were pursuing a righteousness by works, which will never do. We're unable. And so we begin to work in the flesh, and works in the flesh don't please God. Works in the flesh will never measure up, but will always fall short of the glory of God. And so because Israel wanted to have their self-righteousness as the shining uh, reason why they would be glorified, the Lord says, nope, you've missed the mark. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. As the Jews stumbled at the stumbling stone of Jesus, he tripped them up because he said, lay down your works, lay down your burdens, lay down all that you've been doing. And take up what I have done for you in my perfect life, in my perfect death, and in my glorious resurrection. That stumbled them. It meant that they'd have to humble themselves and admit fault. And so verse 21 goes on to say, But to Israel, he says, All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, I've, I've stretched out my hands to these hard-hearted, stiff-necked people who just shrug their shoulders at me every time I beckon them, every time I call them. Reminds me of the parable in Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. And if you can flip there, flip there. If not, just maybe close your eyes and listen to this parable where it says in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all that they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so just a similar thing happened. This parable speaks to just the nation of Israel. And when this celebration of the king's son was to take place, went out to the nation of Israel, invite them. The king's son has come, the celebrations happen. But they laughed and they mocked. And some went even further, they killed the messengers. Actually, in another parable, Jesus takes it even further and he says they actually went and they killed the son. But here in Matthew chapter 22, they said, fine. Let's go out to a group of people on the highways, on the byways, in the gutter. People that weren't invited, that didn't have the invitation. And maybe they'll appreciate it. Speaking of the Gentiles, and boy howdy, we have appreciated it. We have loved this gospel of grace that the God of the Jews would love us. Even though we are those foolish nations that had gone after dumb 
idols. You could ask all the saints of God and we'll tell you that our formal life had been spent worshiping and serving the lusts of our flesh. In our ignorance, we worship those lustful pleasures. We know that we've revolted against God and we lived according to our own ways. And then the invitation came by the Holy Spirit and by grace. We haven't cast away that invitation. Have you cast away that invitation? Are you much like the people in this parable who laughed when God called you to turn from your wicked ways, to turn from your sin, and to receive forgiveness, to receive grace, to receive a free gift of rightness before God? And maybe you've had an outward appearance where you've said, oh, that's great, that's wonderful. An invitation to the wedding feast. But secretly you've crumpled up that invitation and you've tossed it aside. You've given lip service that that would be a wonderful event to be a part of. It'd be wonderful to partake of forgiveness and to walk in relationship with God that he's made available through the sacrificial death of his son. That would be wonderful. But your life and your actions tell a different story. Does your life and your actions actually show mockery to God's plan of salvation as he's gone out into the highways and the byways and invited you, a Gentile, to be part of his salvation work. We look at the wooing work of God here. How in verse 21, all day long I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Just the beautiful wooing work of God here, how he stretches out his hands. Those of you that are parents, man, you know when your, your kids have disobeyed and, you know, they know they're in trouble, they know there's going to be correction. And, you know, you could just totally have, the, you know, the fist of fury and just show wrath through anger. And, but, man, you know those times where just by grace you're able to just say, come here. I know you've disobeyed, but come here. Just come into my arms. Come and receive my love. You stretch out your hands and that child comes running. That's what God has done to us when he says, come, come to me. All you who are weary and are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. Lay down your burden and, and take my burden upon you. It's light. It's easy. You'll find rest for your souls. Or as he says in Revelation, come, anyone who thirsts, just come and drink from the water of life. Anyone who thirsts, come, come. God stretches out his hands. Of course, the culmination of this great stretching out of his hands, we see it at the cross. Where God literally stretched out his hands on a wooden implement of execution called the cross where he had spikes driven into his wrists and driven into his feet, causing excruciating pain. The word excruciate literally means out of the cross to describe the agony that our Lord went to when he literally opened up his arms to a disobedient and contrary people. He did that to Israel in Israel, in Jerusalem, in front of the priests, in front of the temple staff, in, in front of the officers. He stretched out his hands. 
said, come. He said that to this world. He said that to us, come. The pleading work of the Lord, the wooing work of the Lord. As he says in Isaiah, come to me. Come, let us reason together that though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make you as white as snow. Come. Have you been washed from your sins? Have you been cleansed? Have you been justified and declared innocent and righteous before the Lord? Have you been sanctified and been set apart from this world? Come. Come to me, the Lord says. Well, the Jews... Although the arms were spread open and the invitation to come was there, it says that they were stiff-necked. All throughout the scripture, you see examples of their stiff-neckedness. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 13, the Lord says, I've seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Or in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, I know you're rebellious and you're stiff-necked. And today, if I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much after my death, Moses says. Stiff-necked Israel. Paul says that, or excuse me, uh, uh, the Lord says that in Samuel and in Nehemiah and in Acts. Stephen is preaching to the Jews and he says, You are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and kill those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you've now become betrayers and murderers? In the end times, we see that this stiff neck and hard heart, it's going to become more and more, not only in the Jews, it's going to happen in the Gentiles. In 1 Thessalonians, we read of that, that there will come a time where men will be forbidding us to speak. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath will come upon them to the uttermost. And so we see that this open-armed invitation, this wooing took place. We see the frequency there in verse 21 that it took place, that it was all day long. It could also be translated daily. Daily I have stretched out my hands to you. Maybe you're here as a sinner, and and you might not be a Jew, which is the context of the chapter. But praise God, it was true for the Gentiles as well. That the Holy Spirit would beckon you daily. Whether it's when you turn on the radio and you happen to accidentally scan to some Bible station. One of my new friends calls it Jesus Radio, you know. And, and you hear a preacher and he's talking about, you know, your sin. It's like the preacher knows everything that's gone on in your life. He read your journal and you're convicted, but you change the station and you drive as fast as you can. You try to get that out of your mind. You try to resist what was just spoken to you. But then it happens again. You know, through the word of a friend or through the testimony of your conscience Or through the testimony of creation, you're made aware of your sin. You're made aware of your distance from God. You're made aware of your unrighteousness, that you're not innocent before him. Maybe you come here regularly. And by grace, regularly, you come to this sanctuary and you hear the gospel. 
that a loving God created you, but you rebelled against him. And you worship the created things that he created rather than the creator. He himself, who's eternally blessed. You've sinned, you've de-godded God, and you've worshipped everything that has two legs, four legs, four wheels, two wheels, diesel engine, two-stroke engine, you know, grows in a garden, runs on hooves, you name it, we worship it. And you worship it. And God's told you it's not right. All your time, all your energy, all your passion, all your money, all your worship goes to these things. People, places, or things. But I've come that you could be free from sin. That you could be free from condemnation. That you could have life and that you could have life abundantly. And if you would put your trust in me, you won't perish. You won't die eternally but you'll have everlasting life. And yet again, another day goes by where this verse is fulfilled, a day where he has stretched out his hand to you and he said, will you respond? Will you repent of your sin? Or will you go on disobedient, contrary? And if you do go on disobedient, if you do go on contrary, then there's a word from Jesus in Matthew 11 for you. Where Jesus goes and he begins to rebuke the cities where many of his mighty works had been done. Yet those cities did not repent. So Jesus rebuked them. And he says to them, woe to you. That's just an exclamation of grief, knowing that judgment is coming upon this, these people or these places. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Would Jesus say, woe to you, Prineville? Throw your surname in there. Woe to you, Smiths. Woe to you, Gonzalez. You know, whatever. Woe to you. God has brought you regularly through Jesus Radio, through the preacher, through your friend that's testified to you, through your loved one who, who loves you enough to tell you the truth that you are in sin, you need to repent, and you need to receive forgiveness that comes through Jesus' shedding of his blood. But either through a verbal, no thanks, don't want it, or through the shrugging of your shoulders and never acting upon it, you reject the gospel and you will be accountable before the judgment seat of Christ. You will be accountable before the bar of God's judgment. And he'll say, what about all of those times where the preacher or the sister or the cousin or the coworker or the Jesus radio told you you needed me? Woe, woe to you for stiffening your neck, for hardening your heart and for shrugging your shoulders against the salvific will of our God. Spurgeon says, you who are careless hearers are tying bundles for your own burning forever. You that hear and straightway forget or hear with levity are digging for yourselves a pit into which you must be cast Remember, no one will be responsible for your damnation but yourself. 
At this last great day, God will not be responsible for it. As I live, says the Lord, and that's a great oath, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, but I'd rather that he should turn to him and live. God has done much for you. He sent you the gospel. You weren't born in a heathen land. He's given you the book of books. He's given you an enlightened conscience. And if you perish under the sound of the ministry, you perish more fearful and terribly than if you had perished anywhere else. You live in America where you can freely talk about God. You can freely discuss and discourse theology. You can ask questions if you're confounded on something or if you're wondering why is, what's the deal with this and that and this kind of suffering and people dying over here and what, then talk about it. Talk about it. But don't suppress it. You know, the, the Jews in this case, they wouldn't even give God the neutral response that the unbelieving Gentiles would do. No, their response wasn't a neutral response, but it was disobedient. It was contrary. As one man said, it was negative, resistant, recalcitrant, dismissive, determined to be this disobedient and contrary people. And so that brings us to chapter 11. Since the Jews have rejected the Messiah and are rejecting the Messiah, is God done with them? Has God cast them away? And I think that just for the sake of time, nothing wrong with ending a little early, I think that we just need to come and worship and come and worship before the throne and before the cross. And we as Gentiles, and maybe there's a few Jews in here or people with Jewish blood, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Probably a little rare in Prineville. But we can come before the throne of grace today and worship. And we want to thank the Lord that he brought the preacher, the Sunday school teacher, the mom who taught us how to fold our hands and close our eyes and bow our head and pray, Dear Jesus, what I just did was sin. I know I'm a sinner. And I thank you for your forgiveness right now, Lord. Help me to not sin anymore. Praise God for those moms and for those dads that have taught us to humble our hearts before our God. Praise God for the minister and the youth pastor and the Sunday school teacher that have spoken so that we have heard, we know, and we pray in humility for Israel who currently are being provoked to jealousy by these foolish nations, the U.S. of A. God has given us such blessing, such privilege, and to whom much is given, much is required. Have you had the message of the, of the word, of the book of books, spoken to you, and you keep resisting on any level, on any level? Right now, you've got a little attorney running to your aid. Well, you have resisted here, but at least you haven't resisted here. No, you've been resisting here too. You're in sin. Don't let that little attorney lie to you. His name's Satan. He doesn't want to be alone in hell. If you're seeing where you have disobeyed God, confess it right now to him. 
Ask for forgiveness right now. Be forgiven. But if you keep hearing from the Holy Spirit regarding that area of your life or regarding your need for a Savior and you reject and you resist, woe to you. Woe to you. You have had such opportunity. Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If God doesn't judge some of our hard hearts, resistant, stiff neck, he's going to have to apologize to Chorism and Bethsaida. Let's respond today. Let's hear his beckoning of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and of laziness and of idolatry. Let's confess it. I acknowledge it before you as sin, Lord. I repent of it. I believe the gospel. Fill me with your spirit and help me to obey and glorify you. Come on up, Kendra and Nikki, and we'll close with that. You can close your Bibles right now. Just take a minute. Let's just be quiet before the Lord. Set our things down. Set them aside. Let's not let them distract us right now. Just maybe you're here today and you just sense the Lord stretching his hands out to you. That today you would find him even though you weren't seeking him. Actually, maybe you came into this place today and just like, man, I just got to check this off my to-do list. Want to get out of here. Really don't care about seeking God or spending time in prayer to God or worshiping God or hearing from God. Nope. Ah, I just, I just get out of here. <laughs> just here to please somebody or here to do a religious deed and get that done and not here to find God. But, but maybe today you, you found him. You see him stretching his hands out to you by his grace even though you weren't seeking him, you'd find him today. And just in his mercy, in his grace, what a gift that he would show you that you're a sinner. He'd show you that you've got need to be forgiven. You've sinned against him. Seeking after pleasure, seeking after lust, seeking after the buzz or the rush, seeking after the, the image, the appearance, the glory of popularity, showing you your sin today, that you think that you're good with God on your own, what you've done. It's wrong. It's sin. It won't do. What a gift that he would show you that today. But that he'd also show you the good news. He's got his arms stretched out. He has stretched his arms out on the cross at Calvary. That anyone who would believe in what he's done, dying the death that you should have died, that you could live the life 
that he should have lived. Thank you, Lord. Maybe right now you just sense in your heart and in your spirit, just you're sensing that you want to stiffen up again. You want to just ignore. Just got to ignore what Rory's saying. I got to ignore these Bible verses. I've got to just think of something else. Think of something else. We'll just, we'll get out of here. We'll just go about our Sunday. And you had even a, a jump of excitement in your heart when you were thinking about getting out of here. It's God's mercy that you're here right now. And you could just tell the Lord, Lord, that was me. I was wanting to get out of here. And just with the, the tiny little cry, like a child would cry out, just say, Lord, help me. Help me right now, Lord. I'm, I'm stiff-necked. Help me, God. And just receive his help right now. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God right now and he will lift you up. If you just sense the Lord right now speaking to your heart and calling you to be a follower of his. And calling you to repent of your sins and to just turn away from your sins and sensing that he brought you here today just for you to hear this message of just forgiveness and grace and just being a fool who would find God as God says here I am here I am So you can respond to him right now. Why don't you just stand up where you're at if that's you. Just you know if that's you. You sense the Holy Spirit, God himself, just pulling on your heart to respond to him. You sense God himself beckoning you, saying, here I am, here I am. You hear God himself saying, come to me. Come to me, you're thirsty Come and drink the water of life freely. Just stand right now where you're at. Just respond to him. Just, Lord, that's me. It'd be so easy for me to, to pretend like I didn't hear you and to just leave and forget that. But Lord, no, today I, I want to respond. I don't want to become any harder towards you. I don't want to become any more rebellious towards you. Stand right now where you're at and just receive his grace. Stand right now where you're at and just receive forgiveness. Put everything out of your mind right now that would just try to get you to stay seated if that's you. Words are coming into your heart right now, just embarrassing. And what are the people I'm here with going to think? You put that out of your mind right now. And you hear the beckoning of the God of the universe calling you to respond to him, to his call of salvation to you. Respond now. You may not have another chance. This may be your last chance to respond to God's calling. If you hear the voice of the Lord saying, come, 
You better come. And as you respond, man, just receive just these garments of white that he's prepared for you, that he's paid for you, that he's bought for you. As he cleanses you because of what he's done on the cross, just receive cleansing this morning. Chapter 10 says, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, Jesus hung on the cross for some nine hours, naked on a public road. He was mocked. He was in excruciating pain. He was spat upon. And he was mindful of you. Are you going to respond to him? Are you going to confess him? As we come to the Lord's Supper today as well, we, we take the cup with juice and we take the bread and it's just a picture of the price that paid for this new covenant with God, the price that was Jesus's blood and Jesus's body. He's the sacrificial lamb that has made this new covenant, this new promise of forgiveness and strength and power and comfort and worship. He's made it all available through his blood through his body being broken and shed. And just as uh, we Gentiles, part of a foolish nation today, come and partake, let's just partake with joy that God has made a way available for these foolish nations to be saved and to be forgiven. And as we partake, let's say a prayer today for Israel, who currently just is in a state, corporately, as a nation, of rejecting their God, of rejecting their Messiah. And now they follow after strange idols. Let's take the covenant, just the, the symbol of the covenant today with humility. And let's pray for Israel. Let's pray that soon, they would come to know the Savior. As we close in worship and close in this song, just you can come forward and grab the elements of communion as you're ready. Go back to your seat or you can just bow down at the altar. It's just so good to not drink or eat in an unworthy manner, but let's just ask the Lord to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us and that he would lead us in the way of everlasting as we remember just the great price he paid.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.